Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. In the last five years, over 500 Afghan migrants have made Connecticut their home. And in the coming year, that number will triple. The U.S. is responding to new refugees from Afghanistan following the Taliban's takeover of the country. But what happens after they arrive in Connecticut? This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This week, we take a look at the immigration process for refugees. And later in the show, we'll hear from two experts on immigration about how we can support new migrants and what their research says about the ability to thrive in America. And housing advocate Sarah Bronin breaks down zoning policy in Connecticut and why it's making housing more expensive. But first, Hasna Samadi. She immigrated to Connecticut from Afghanistan in 2016 with her family. She now works with the Integrated Refugee and Immigrant Services and Sanctuary Kitchen in New Haven. She helps to support new migrants in their transition to the U.S. Hasna, welcome to Disrupted. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure to be with you. You moved to the United States with your family in 2016, and you moved here from Afghanistan. Talk to our listeners about what that process was like for you to come to the U.S. Yeah, thank you. Uh, We, yes, we came in 2016 uh, from uh, Afghanistan, and uh, we came as a SIW, uh, which is a special immigration visa. And that uh, means uh, my husband was working with uh, a United States Agency for International Development in Afghanistan. And the process took more than two years during that time. we we were living in Kabul, but we left our home and we uh, moved to a safer area uh, while we were waiting for our U.S. visa. And uh, when uh, we first came uh, to United States, um, that one thing was for sure that we could get security, which we were seeking, and that was the the thing the most important thing for us that we left everything behind to just get. Uh, security. So let's talk a little bit about that because it was a major adjustment. It was an adjustment not just for you, but you also have children that you had to help them adjust to being in a new place, but also leaving home and leaving all that was familiar. Why the choice to move to Connecticut? So talk about coming to Connecticut in particular. Great question. Yes. Uh, just a um, couple months before us, one of my husband's uh, friends, uh, he moved to Connecticut. And uh, when he moved, we were in contact with him and uh, he, he was so happy and he was uh, uh, very, um, his opinion was very positive about uh, Connecticut. And he was telling us this is the best place. So we decided that's the place we want to be. 
So you were able to come to Connecticut with your family. You had a a colleague or friend who was here. You came here for safety and security, and yet it is still a major adjustment. What would you say was the biggest adjustment or biggest challenge when you compare your life in Afghanistan to your life here in the U.S.? Uh, It's very hard uh, when you leave your um, family friends, relatives, culture, everyone behind. Your life and all the achievement you you had uh, until that moment, you know. The first, uh, at the beginning, like the first um, couple months, I was so um, kind of depressed and worried about my, my kids because they were very socialized people, like very socialized kids. They were playing with anyone they see like they didn't mind if they they know those kids before or no but uh, here when they came I didn't see that and when I was asking and um, encouraging them to go and play with kids and they were kind of um, rejecting and saying uh, you know we we don't know the language and they didn't feel comfortable to play so they couldn't communicate and I watched cartoon movies with them for hours and hours and uh, read English books to them. Just I wanted to teach them English as fast as I can to see my kids uh, enjoy their their time with with other kids and play with them. The other thing that was uh, very hard for me uh, here, language. I knew English, but the, you know, when you put English in practice and talk to somebody or just learn it from book or just uh, study English, it's totally different. So when I was talking to people, uh, it was very hard for them to understand me. Uh, I mean, in by when I was talking on the phone to them, I would rather go take a bus or taxi to solve my problem or um, talk to somebody in person instead of talking to them on the phone. So I I remember uh, the time that uh, there was cold winter. Um, I called one of the offices and I couldn't communicate very well and they didn't understand me. So I I took the bus for 2.9 mile. It was 2.9 mile. But uh, in that, I was waiting for bus in very cold winter, and I took the bus, and finally I get there to just communicate and tell them what I need. There were a lot of challenges um, at the beginning. I, I didn't know from where I start my education. I was a high school graduate in Afghanistan. But here, uh, it was very tough to see myself as a graduate student in the future. So... I was just struggling and I was hoping to get one day to that point. And finally, I enrolled in Gateway Community College in New Haven. Uh, Now I'm in the last semester of accounting. You are pursuing your education. You are supporting your family, your children, as you mentioned, but you're also creating opportunities for other people in serving as a translator, in in serving as an ambassador to say, I know how difficult this journey can be because I navigate it as well. And how can I make the way easier for other people? And I think that speaks to the commitment that many people have when they come into community of wanting 
something to make it better. Now that you've been here for five years, and as you said, you're in your last semester at Gateway Community College. Congratulations, by the way. Does Connecticut feel like home at this point, or does it still feel like a place where you just are? I I feel Connecticut is my second home because um, what I need for my family, for myself, and you know, when you describe home, you want to be, uh, home is a place you want to be safe there, you know? You want to have something that you need. And that's exactly what I, I have in Connecticut. I'm safe here. I have uh, security. I have opportunities. So definitely, Connecticut is my home. There's a connection that binds us all together. We're, regardless of where we come from, regardless of our experience growing up, that common need for safety, for security, for connection, the hope that our children will have a better life than what we have and that we create opportunities for them. And as we think about the fact that the state is now uh, poised to take over 1,000 refugees from Afghanistan to come to the state of Connecticut, what do you think we should be doing to better support people in their transition to Connecticut? Well, I would just say for my personal experience, obviously, that uh, the people who are coming now, that's uh, no doubt that they need more help than the people who came a couple of years ago because they came with nothing. At least I have, uh, when I was coming to uh, Connecticut or US, I have two suitcases with me. I have my belongings belongings with me. But these people, I hear they didn't have even a pair of shoes. They were just uh, running to the airplane. I didn't have anything. So they obviously need a lot of support. But at the same time, I would say the most helpful thing would be to help them and guide them and give them guidance. I, there is a, I don't know, um, you can correct me. In English, you have that feed a person with uh, a fish every day, with one fish every day, or just teach them how to catch it. I guess if you, instead of giving them something, if you teach or uh, guide them how to get it, and that would be easier for them and also for the people who are helping them. So basically, the, they need guidance they need support to to get to the point they want because i know many who came here and who are coming they left their country just because of security uh, they had very good jobs they had life there they had home car everything there but the only problem and the only thing they didn't have uh, was security and that's why they're here and these people are very hard-working people and they, they 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 want to get to somewhere and they don't want to just get help all the time just help them with opportunities tell them guide them and show them opportunities that okay you can ask that organization they can help you with uh, your career or educational education and they can reach to their career and educational goals. You left a lot 
in Afghanistan. You, you left family there. You left opportunities that you had built. And you speak of all that you've been able to build here in the U.S. And as I said, that you're helping for other people. What are you hearing from your family who are still in your home country? And do you hope to return someday? Absolutely. I I wish I can help my people. To be honest, I, I had that uh, hope. If you asked me like uh, several months ago, I would definitely tell you that despite all those security situation, I want one day to get back to my country and go back to my country and help my family, my country people and those who are in need. But nowadays it looks like a dream. It's just kind of a wish. It's, it's, I don't think it will be if with this government we have in Afghanistan right now, I don't think that that would be something that somebody can help and go there. Obviously that's the, the reason we, we, I'm trying to help here to people because I know right now I cannot help my people back in my country. I wish I could do that because they are in need and they are in very bad situation. But unfortunately, as an individual, I don't think that would be possible to help them. That's why I co-founded Project Q in 2020. Uh, it's a collective for refugee and immigrant women's well-being. So at least I can help the people who who are here and women, I believe women has many challenges, especially Afghan women, because when they came here, they are with children, they uh, have an extended family, they have five, four, three children, and they cannot help them, their self to learn English, to go out, to do something for themselves. So that was the reason of our project. Myself, uh, at the beginning, I didn't have childcare for my children. And that's why I couldn't uh, get to go and learn English or go to college because of my children. I was staying home like all day, 24-7 with my kids. That's a very challenging time for, for women, especially now that uh, they have a family back in Afghanistan and uh, they cannot help them. Uh, the only thing they can do is just pray and always worried about them. That's all they can do. Well, I thank you for all that you are doing to think about your family, to think about community and the ways in which you are helping and supporting women here in the U.S. and then showing what's possible when, as you said, people have opportunity to do that. Osana Samadi immigrated to the U.S. in 2016 with her family. She now works with the Integrated Refugee and Immigrant Services and Sanctuary Kitchen in support of new migrants to the U.S. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. When we come back, we'll learn more about the refugee process and how we can support their transition to Connecticut. They have to come here and they have to find two to three jobs to survive. There is not a tax dollar that is going towards you helping pay for this. And later, how zoning policy is making our state more expensive and more segregated. This is Disrupted. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Before the break, we heard from Hasna Samadi. She's an Afghan refugee who's made Connecticut her home over the last five years. But it took Hasna's family nearly two years before they could find affordable housing. Later in the hour, we'll hear how the way we zone communities in Connecticut is making the housing market more expensive. But now we continue our look at the Afghan refugee resettlement process. President Joe Biden says he wants to welcome nearly 100,000 Afghan refugees in the next year, and the state of Connecticut will help nearly 1,000 migrate to the state. But after the dust settles, how do these refugees adjust to life in America? Martine DeHert is the Refugee Services Program Manager at the Connecticut Institute for Refugees and Immigrants. Dr. Salma Musa is an assistant professor of political science at Yale University. Her research focuses on the best tools for refugee resettlement and integration. Martine, Salma, welcome to Disrupted. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Martine, I want to start with you because the organization that you work with, the Connecticut Institute for Refugees and Immigrants, has been helping communities across our state for over 100 years. This is not a new challenge, but it is something that has been a long-standing commitment. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with the organization, talk to us about the mission and what you want to accomplish. Um, so yeah, exactly. We have been uh, in existence since 103 years. 1918 was when uh, Siri was established. And it has always been about welcoming immigrants and serving immigrants. And so it is really all about uh, promoting uh, well-being of our community. My focus is on refugees and welcoming refugees, asylees and evacuees right now, um, you know, with the crisis in Afghanistan. You know, for you working with people who are refugees and have had this very complex and traumatic experience that would even bring them to the United States. That notion of resettlement is much more complex than simply, do you have a place to live? What do the first few days of resettlement look like for people that are coming to Connecticut and in particular connecting with Siri to make that adjustment? It's very hazy. You know, last night we had to pick two family at 1130 at night. They arrive here at Bridgeport. They're very confused. They don't know where they are. What is this city? It's in the middle of the night. What does it look like? You're welcoming them when they arrive. You pick them up. Um, You know, I mean, we uh, set them up in housing. We look for houses prior to their arrival. We are the ones that are happy. They are baffled, right? They are, this is a new life and they are really unsure of what is to unfold. So a fear starts to come in. And so, you know, we go into explaining to them all of the steps that will take care Uh, of the next few days. Like, you know, I mean, today we're picking these families up. We're going to explain to them what the agency does, what are the services that we're going to provide, what are the timelines for the services, for them to understand it, and then listen to them also and hear what they have to say and listen to their fears as well. It is a very long process. We could never ask anybody to just adjust Um, You know, it is not because the United States has opened its doors that that means that, you know, that everything is good for them. It's a really, really difficult adjustment and it takes time. 
Salma, that the U.S. has opened its doors in some way. But at the same time, we also know that the climate within the U.S. can often not be welcoming or accepting to people who are coming from other parts of the world. The Biden administration suggested $6.4 billion to assist refugees coming from Afghanistan. Talk to us about what that means in terms of that sort of commitment and legislation and what it looks like for the families that Martine works with who are coming in with this sort of confusion and angst about relocating. So under the Trump administration, there were these massive, massive cuts across the board to the uh, U.S. refugee admissions program. A lot of staff were lost during that time. Capacity really went down. Uh, and then you have this 180 where the Biden administration, you know, eventually decided to raise the ceiling to be one of the highest ever presidential determinations, which is the number of the target goal for the number of admissions. So you have in a very short time period, a reversal from completely gutting the program to now needing it to have its highest ever capacity. So I'm glad that the administration is making those commitments and investing the money in rebuilding the program because people like Martine and her colleagues are the ones who have to go to the airport and pick people up and find them housing on very short notice, which is very difficult to do. Uh, you're giving people legal adm- advice, citizenship advice. Uh, you're giving them you know, their, their program and their schedule for ESL classes and how to sign up for all these different programs that they're eligible for. So it's really a lot. And it can't happen without the staffing and it can't happen without the programs in place to actually provide the 90 day support after arrival. So I'm glad that the bright steps are being taken to reverse some of the damage that was done um, from 2016 onwards. This in many ways has become a partisan issue. To think about Siri existing for 103 years, which means that, you know, our our need to address immigrants and to support them is not new for the U.S., but the climate feels so different right now. How do we at the political level work through those partisan divisions to think about this is really about uh, an American challenge, but also an international question as well as conflicts seem to continue across the world. What I can speak to is the really solid evidence base that we have about the different strategies that are have actually been proven to be effective in getting people to empathize with refugees and to have more liberal opinions about admitting refugees. So how do you actually shift opinion on this in general? So things like appealing to people's personal immigration stories, and most people in the U.S. have one of those, uh, that is something that's been proven to get people more empathetic toward refugees. Exposure to refugees in a meaningful way. So not just kind of seeing them across the street, but actually having a conversation. So structuring a meaningful interaction, that generally is a positive thing. Perspective taking. So asking people, imagine if you were in the shoes of this person and you had 24 hours to leave and you don't have your documents, you know, what would you do? Getting people to kind of engage in this almost like a role-playing exercise, um, that has also been uh, proven to increase empathy. So though there are some of these kind of techniques or strategies that just get people to humanize and empathize with refugees. And it also translates into their opinions about what the refugee admissions cap should be in a, in a positive way. Martine, what are you seeing as the biggest challenges for refugee resettlement right now um, here in Connecticut, but if there are national trends that you're seeing as well? So 
The Connecticut trend and the national trend is housing. Finding housing right now is the most difficult task. There is, um, the market is really, really low, but the prices are really, really high. And so when you look at finding a house that was already difficult before, but now it's actually really difficult, you know, and so we are looking at rents that are $2,000 and we can't take them because, you know, I look at myself, I'm not able to pay $2,000 on my own. So how am I going to welcome somebody in this country who possibly does not speak English and ask them to pay $2,000 a month? It's, it's hardening, really. So uh, the only way for us right now, it is our hardest, our most difficult task. And so we're expanding. And so we are looking at providing services in areas that we weren't before. Like, I mean, right now we are looking at Stanford uh, and in Waterbury, where we didn't provide resettlement agency, but we are looking where are houses that are affordable and that yet that meet the conditions that are required that are also safe, where families are going to be safe, because that is the other part of it you have to look at all of this and definitely housing for us has has become extremely difficult to find the other part is that if we find a house in one neighborhood we find another one like miles away and so we are looking at at least trying to place them to neighborhoods that are closer to each other so that that allows also that community feeling uh, and that's really difficult right now I think many people hear about refugee resettlement. They hear about the amazing work of organizations like Siri or Iris here in New Haven. And they assume that these families come and everything is taken care of for them, that it, it's just sort of a blank check, that it's written, it's paid for. They have nothing to worry about because they're not contributing. What would you say to people who, who give that response of, you know, yes, housing may be difficult, but it's all paid for once they're here, we're all paying for them as taxpayers. What's the response there? You're actually not paying for it at all. They are the ones who are paying for it. Um, they have to come here and they have to find two to three jobs to survive. There is not a tax dollar that is going towards you helping pay for this. They are coming here. They are learning that I have to learn English. I have to pay a rent that is so high that was unheard of in their countries. They're not handed anything at all, really. They're handed hardship when they come. They are handed a reality check that they were not prepared for. People tend to think coming to America, the streets are made of gold and they are going to receive everything. Agencies have millions. We are banks, which is not the case. We rely heavily on donors. And I'll just add to that, that the support period for refugees in uh, most places across the country is 90 days. That's it. Day 91, it's goodbye. We can't help you anymore. And there's no really funding for you anymore. So like the, the actual federal money that goes to the, the RMP or the, the resettlement process, it's only for 90 days. And after that, the support is basically gone. And the U.S. philosophy on this is really different from Europe or Canada. The idea is we are going to throw you in the deep end and that's how you learn to survive and fast employment no matter what the level is, that is the best way for you to integrate. 
That's the U.S. approach. And the entire funding of these resettlement agencies really rests on one key outcome, which is how many of the employable refugees that you have received are employed in 90 days. That's it. That is the only thing the government cares about. So actually, all the incentive structures are to get refugees employed as fast as possible. So it's definitely not the story of, oh, they're a tax burden or something. At the same time, uh, or on the other hand, I guess, in Europe or in Canada, they do a skills, investing upfront in skills approach. Like we're going to give you a softer landing and spend the first one or two years when you're here investing in your language and your um, vocational training. Uh, and then we're going to see if you can get employed. And honestly, we actually don't know which one is better. And I, I'm going to be honest, we don't know which approach is better. Sometimes like that first job is what you need to get your foot in the door and start getting exposure and you pick up the language that way. Um, and it's unclear you know, what the returns are to investing more in skills over a longer time period. But what I will say is that immigrants in general and refugees in particular, if you look at their contributions over their lifetime to the tax system, um, and uh, give and what they have taken out in terms of welfare, it's more or less a wash. Like once you take into account that they arrive with very different characteristics. So any difference or any like welfare burden is really because they arrive with different characteristics and even native born Americans with those same characteristics cost the system the same amount. So it's nothing to do with their immigration status. It's traits like what age are they when they arrive and what is their skills profile? And they're really no different than native born people when you start to actually control for those other characteristics. If I can just add that uh, every refugee, for every refugee, the government only provides $1,225 per refugee. With that, go and find a housing and send them in a housing. You know, I think it also matters where people are resettling or trying to resettle. We know that Connecticut is extremely expensive. We know that the Northeast is very expensive. And yet we, we think and we hope that perhaps communities here may be more welcoming to people who are coming from other places. Selma, let's talk about your research as, as we think about next steps and what people can do to support. What would you say are, are one or two tools that that we should focus on as we think about that long-term success for families who are coming here? The main categories of interventions that seem to really work, um, one is investing in human capital. So if people already come and they're high-skilled, recredential them, like find a way to, to translate their certificate or their diploma instead of them starting from scratch and being treated like a high school graduate, um, investing in language training, um, those that in human capital and access to higher education, that's that seems to be influential. The second is financial assistance. So refugees are they are you know by and large poor. They are the working poor in America, just like many other groups um, comprise the working poor in America. And we've seen really solid evidence that there's no that there's no such thing as a, a welfare magnet. Refugees don't migrate to places that have higher welfare. And then lastly, um, optimizing the resettlement location. So what city are you placed in? And it's not just that some cities are better for refugees and some refugee, some countries of origin are you know, better at economically integrating for whatever reason. Those two things actually combine. So being an Afghan refugee in Seattle, like potentially that interaction for whatever reason, there's already a community, the labor market is a, is a better fit. That's the right place for those, for those people to go. Um, so that's a really powerful tool. 
Then you have the kind of building social ties with locals. And here's really where the volunteer aspect comes in. And Martine probably knows more about this too. Uh, so one of the big pro, uh, one of the big bets the Biden administration is making is that co-sponsorship. So that's the program where private citizens get together in groups and they agree to partly sponsor a refugee. So they, they raise the money, they have some responsibilities that they share with the agency. The Biden administration is really making a bet that that model is going to not only better integrate people, but potentially be able to increase the numbers of refugees we can actually accept. We, we don't really know the, you know, the jury's still out about the effectiveness of this program. We're, we're, we're trying to evaluate it now. But that's really one concrete thing that people can do is to get a group. Of, if you're able, if you have the means and you have the interest, is to sign up for this kind of commitment where you and a group of other citizens agree to privately sponsor uh, one refugee case. We don't really know the, you know, the evidence is still, we don't know how uh, well that works compared to the traditional process. But that's definitely a concrete thing that people can do. Martine Selma has laid out the the best tools and the things that we need to address to think about success in a different way. What would you say to listeners about how they can help to support the kinds of tools that Selma just mentioned, but to help create uh, a welcoming, successful experience here in Connecticut? I would definitely tell people, go to the websites of all of the different resettlement agencies, read about them. You will also see what are the programs that they are offering and how you can help. Contact the agency, meet with somebody, talk to them about what you can do and about what the agency is doing. Try to find out what the agency really needs. What's the help that the agency really needs? Not, nobody can work without volunteers. Volunteers are a key to any agency, absolutely. Help is needed. An agency cannot stand on its own with no help from its community. So community is, is huge, definitely. Uh, but there are so many ways that one can help, and it's not always about money. That human interaction counts for so much more than money. Again, that smile that comes in counts so much more than money, knowing that they have a person that is an American that is going to welcome them, that's going to teach them about life here and where they can teach also that American about their life and their culture and that exchange. And, and that's it. I mean, I think the minute that you meet a refugee, it's no longer a refugee. That image that you have of a refugee is gone because now it has actually become a person that you can connect with. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, they're just like me. And he's like, yes. Right. And so for us, human, human contact is definitely uh, really, really important. But I would suggest go to the websites, go to Iris website, go to Siri's website and go look at all the ways that you can help. We have many programs. So as Selma said earlier, yes, the, the resettlement program lasts uh, three months, but we serve our clients up to five years. Right. It's not always easy to just come and help refugees when they arrive, because that is the time where they are most in need of the agency and of the services. But I would definitely say past those 90 days, that three months period, that is when, you know, anybody could come in and that's when the service would be, you know, best. Martine Derrett is Refugee Services Program Manager at the Connecticut Institute for Refugees and Immigrants, and Dr. Salma Musa is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Yale University. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you so, so much for having us. This was beautiful. Thank you. We'll have links to the ways you can help refugees on our website at ctpublic.org disrupted. 
Coming up after the break, how a new Connecticut law to standardize zoning practices could make housing more affordable. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. In September, Connecticut saw more evictions than it had since before the pandemic. And even though our housing market has exploded over the last year, it's left many residents struggling to stay in their homes. Our next guest thinks the way we zone neighborhoods might be contributing to the crisis. Sarah Bronin is professor of city and regional planning at Cornell University. She's founder and lead organizer of Desegregate Connecticut, and she was recently nominated by President Biden to chair the Advisory Council on Historic Preservation. Her organization is working to change our state's zoning laws and make housing more affordable. Sarah, welcome to Disrupted. Thanks so much for having me. You know, we've heard a lot in the news about the housing market or the housing crisis in Connecticut. And a lot of that has been the result of the pandemic and the the push for people to come into the state. But we also know that that housing market has been ranked as one of the most unaffordable in the nation. And much of that is due to our zoning policy. Talk to our listeners who may not be familiar with zoning and its impact about why zoning is so important here in Connecticut. So zoning is the hidden power that shapes the way that our cities and towns are built. It pretty much dictates every inch of the state uh, and what can be put there. So whether housing uh, or offices or factories can be put in any location. When it comes to the housing market, Zoning constrains the number of units that can be built on any lot, and it also says how tall buildings can be, how big of lots they have to be located on, and sets out other design rules that sometimes get so specific and so onerous that they make it really hard to build housing. You know, Connecticut is a small state with lots of towns, which means lots of communities deciding what they want. Talk a little bit about that town discretion in Connecticut and how it relates to the zoning challenges you just mentioned. So every town in Connecticut has the ability to enact a a different zoning code. That's a power that the state uh, has given uh, towns through enabling acts. The total is 169 towns, but 180 zoning jurisdictions. So with 180 different sets of rules, it's no wonder that it has become uh, very difficult in Connecticut to have a unified housing market, uh, to have a market where somebody who wants to build a house can see the same set of rules between one town and the other. There needs to be a little bit more ground rules that are are similar from one town to the other so that we can better address uh, a very acute housing shortage uh, in Connecticut and the high demands that are placed on the existing housing that we have driving up prices for everybody. You know, Sarah, I'm a visual learner. And to hear 169 towns, but 180 zoning pieces sounds overwhelming. 
But what's helped really to get a sense of what that looks like is the landmark map that your group, Desegregate Connecticut, released. It provides an overview of how every community in the state is zoned. What was the inspiration behind that project? And what would you say are the key takeaways of bringing that all together? So this was a great project for us to dig into because nobody has done this kind of work before, mapping out exactly how every jurisdiction in any single state zones for housing. If you look at our website, you can access this map and find out how your town zones. It will tell you whether you allow one, two, three, or four family housing. It will tell you whether the town requires a minimum lot size. It will tell you whether and where accessory apartments are allowed. So we developed the atlas because people kept asking us, well, how does my town zone and how does it differ from any other town? And we eventually realized as we were trying to answer those questions that it's very difficult to visualize without going through 32,000 pages of zoning text. The bottom line can be summarized in just a few statistics. One is that 91% of Connecticut is zoned for single family housing. Only 2% of Connecticut allows four or more family housing to be built as of right. That means without uh, public major public hearing requirements and with pretty clear guidance in in the zoning code itself, setting out the rules for people to understand before they try to build. The other statistic I would throw out Uh, which has significant environmental consequences as well as affordability consequences, is that 80% of land zoned for residential development requires a one acre minimum lot size. So if you think about a minimum lot size requirement of one acre or more, what that means is that a single house can only be built on one acre of land, which means you have to be able to get to that acre of land, usually by car. You also have to be able to afford that amount of land. And finally, a developer who's building that kind of housing has to have enough open (laughs) developable land to put that housing, which means that they're destroying farmland and forest. We've heard a lot of times people say, oh, well, this one acre minimum zoning is really good for the environment, but it's actually the worst thing we do in Connecticut and what it's resulted in is severe depletion of our natural and agricultural assets across the state. One of the things that I appreciate about your work is that you're able to see how all of these issues and challenges are interconnected and nested so that it is about zoning, but it's also about transportation and access and then the environmental impact. And so rather than just talking about these challenges or pointing them out, you and your group has worked toward passing legislation here in Connecticut. And so one of the ones that I think is is really important for seeing how this comes together is House Bill 6107. And it prevents city officials from rejecting building permits because they violate the quote unquote character of the district. What does that policy mean for zoning in Connecticut and having a vehicle to address some of the other challenges you just mentioned? So the term character has sometimes been used to reject housing proposals that people 
may not like, not because of their architectural characteristics, but because of the people who might be brought to their town. If you listen closely to uh, some zoning meetings historically, uh, you can definitely hear coded words uh, for the term character to be used against people. So the new legislation says that there will have to be objective standards and characteristics when commissions are deciding uh, both to adopt regulations and also when deciding on individual projects. So we've said it needs to be tied to specific architectural or site-based uh, characteristics, physical characteristics, not uh, based on the people who live there. In addition to that, the new law prevents towns from enacting zoning regulations that discriminate on the basis of income source. So that might mean um, a project that might be uh, being built with state or federal funding. Um, income levels of individual proposed residents or immutable characteristics, uh, which uh, other than age or disability, which you're legally allowed uh, to discriminate in favor of. Um, uh, and so the, this new state law set goes a little bit farther and tries to better articulate some of the constraints that we should have been using all along here in Connecticut uh, in making sure that zoning uh, regulators are making decisions fairly and without the kind of hidden discrimination that you sometimes have seen in the past. You know, this law is groundbreaking. It creates a template and an example for other states to follow as well. But one of the concerns is that it allows towns to opt out of most of the new regulations if they want to. So does this law go far enough to really change access and affordability here in Connecticut? Well, there are two provisions in the bill that, that towns can opt out of. So there's a provision that legalized accessory apartments and tried to set out more standardized rules around them. We've seen some towns start the process of trying to opt out, but we've also seen local residents push back against that because in this case, the state legislature has given them a right that could produce income, that could allow the elderly homeowner to stay in place, um, that could help uh, create more minority homeownership. Uh, but that's that's a place where you're seeing property owners are pushing back and saying, wait a minute, why are we opting out of this? Why are we choosing to do that? And we hope to see more of that um, in the future. The second provision that towns can opt out of, or I should say zoning jurisdictions can opt out of, is a cap on parking. The law now says that uh, studio and one-bedroom apartments only need to have one parking space per unit, and places with two bedrooms or more need to have just two parking spaces per unit. We have seen in towns like Darien, uh, which as listeners might know, is a very high-income, wealthy town, uh, parking space requirements as high as three parking spaces per studio apartment. And Darien, instead of complying with the new parking mandates, has become the first, and as far as I know, the only jurisdiction in the state to start the process of opting out. Now, in what planet does somebody living in a studio apartment need three parking spaces, I ask? And you know, the reality is, is, is they, they don't. And those kinds of requirements are really put in to reduce the number of units that can be built within a jurisdiction. So I encourage everyone to keep an eye out 
for the way that their communities are treating the parking issue. And we want to be sure that towns don't opt out of that. And it's a little bit more, I guess I would say it's a little bit more of a wonky issue than the accessory apartments issue, which people can pretty easily understand. If a town opts out of this, they're taking something away from me. Connecticut has seen a bit of a housing boom in particular parts of the state. So in the Hartford metro area, for example, housing sales grew by 21%. And a lot of that was people moving into Connecticut. So while some may see that as a good positive sign of a healthy economy, there's also some concern about what happens to the people who are already living in a neighborhood or community when they start to get priced out by people who are leaving New York, for example, coming to Connecticut. How does that sort of population change or housing demand bear on the things that you and your group are concerned about? Well, the data shows that the more housing is provided, the less likely people are to be placed out. Again, the research, uh, even in high-income places or high uh, property value places like Brooklyn and New York City, has shown that the more housing you supply, the better it is for everybody because it gives all renters and all all homeowners too uh, more options to choose from. So we look at the issue of housing supply as being one of our primary goals. We want more housing in smart places. We don't want to build the cookie cutter, same old uh, one size fits all zoning that we have now. We want to give people more options in places where development already exists. And that includes really just allowing these uh, kinds of accessory apartments, duplex and triplex and fourplex housing where the infrastructure supports it. Uh, and again, the, the, the more housing, the less displacement and the more options you have for everyone. Sarah Bronin is professor of city and regional planning at Cornell University, and she's founder and lead organizer of Desegregate Connecticut. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This week's episode was produced by James Scoble-Wolf, Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tularski. Our interns are Abby Levine and Dylan Reyes. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening.